In the Beginning, Looking Back to the Big Bang with Brian Keating, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Professor Keating directs the Simons Observatory, now under construction in Chile's Atacama region, atop a more than 5,000-meter mountain. He is also the author of Losing the Nobel Prize, his highly recommended, often very personal tale about much more than reform of the Nobel Prize for Physics, You'll hear a portion of our delightful conversation after headlines from the downlink. Later, we'll get an update on the Planetary Society's new STEP grant program from Bruce Betts. I'm sure you've heard by now that NASA has selected two Discovery class missions. Veritas and Da Vinci Plus will both orbit Venus late this decade, if all goes well. This story tops our downlink headlines, and my colleague Ray Paletta has written a very fine article about the missions and our hot twin. You'll find both at planetary.org. If you caught the June 4th Space Policy Edition, you heard Casey Dreyer and me talking about the Biden White House's budget request that includes nearly $25 billion for NASA. That's a very welcome almost 7% increase. Also in the June 4th downlink is news about Canada's new investment in space science and exploration, including the nation's role in the Artemis Lunar Exploration Program. And up on Mars, Ingenuity had a slightly close call during its sixth flight. A glitch confused the little rotorcraft's autonomous flight control system. Thank goodness it was able to land safely about five meters short of its intended destination. These stories and more are at planetary.org. Here's a story that has taken 17 months to tell. It began in January of 2020, when I drove up to the University of California, San Diego, to meet Brian Keating. Brian is Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the UCSD Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences. He is also Associate Director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UCSD, where I've gathered material for several other planetary radio features. And Brian wrote Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. The book is about all that and more, including Brian's odyssey across several attempts to determine one of the most basic truths about how our universe came to be. That journey has led him to leadership of the Simons Observatory, and was one of the reasons I joined him all those months ago in a busy, towering lab at UCSD's Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences. Also there for a tour of what will become part of one of the most exquisitely sensitive telescopes ever built were Brian's friends, past planetary radio guests James Benford and Paul Davies. Yeah, three distinguished physicists and authors and your unworthy host. The plan was to sit down with Brian soon afterward for a one-on-one interview. Then came COVID. That conversation finally happened just a few weeks ago, but first... Here's a taste of that lab tour conducted by Brian as work on the observatory's instruments continued around us. We'll take a look at the inside of the Simons Observatory Small Aperture Telescope camera. So here you see a large circular disk. This is what holds our focal plane of over 10,000 dual polarization, dual frequency detectors. They must be cooled to at least 100 millikelvin. 
0.1 degree above absolute zero. People always think of San Diego as this you balmy most, place. Not at least. Right? Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, we can actually cool below it, but yes, you're right. It will operate at 100 millikelvin. And that's this device here. This is called a dilution refrigerator, which uh, the technical way to describe it is it works sort of magically. It works by uh, diffusing and diluting a mixture, a mash, we call it, uh, of helium-3 through some amount of helium-4. And depending on the ratio of helium-3 to helium-4 and the pressure that they're at, it will effectively cool. We can actually achieve a temperature of 6 millikelvin in this refrigerator. That will be at the focus of three lenses, exactly like what Galileo built in his uh, telescope in 1610, exactly 410 years ago to the day when we're looking at this. We also have to evacuate out and have this under extreme vacuum, about 110 millionth of the pressure we feel here at sea level. So we have to pump out this thing with a very sophisticated pump to just a fraction of about a 10 millionth of the atmospheric pressure that we feel here. Then we'll have three lenses made of ultra high purity silicon that will focus the light onto those 10,000 detectors. And we'll have a field of view that's equivalent to about 60 times the diameter of the full moon. And it'll be a roughly circular patch of the sky. And then we'll scan that patch across the sky for five years straight. And we need all those photons and all these detectors to make a detection of these signals that are maybe a part per billion of the Earth's surface temperature, maybe even below that. You don't have to worry about bird droppings at that altitude, I suppose. <laughs> no, we have uh, llama attacks, but no, we're, we're, we're pretty safe from, from those effects. Brian Keating, James Benford, Paul Davies, and yours truly in January of 2020. You heard mention of ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, that is not far from the Simons Observatory site in Chile's Atacama. Check planetary.org slash radio if you'd like to hear my Alma visit of several years ago. Brian and I made plans to get together again as soon as we had both been vaccinated and it was deemed safe to do so. The result was a more than one-hour conversation that you'll only hear a little bit of, but the whole interview is waiting for you on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. Brian was also recording it for his own Into the Impossible podcast. By the way, here are a couple of other abbreviations to watch out for. BICEP-2 is the previous microwave telescope that is at the heart of Brian's book, and that caused a stir when its early claims of success were shown to be dust in the wind, almost literally. It stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. And the CMB is, of course, the cosmic microwave background, the echo of creation that cosmologists have been chasing since its accidental discovery back in the mid-1960s, and even before. Brian, we just watched that outstanding tour that you provided uh, back on January 31st of uh, 2020. Uh, where were we before we were so rudely interrupted? Because that was supposed to be followed by the conversation that we're going to have right now. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's right. I mean, when we think about going back to the origins of the universe and probing its first moments using gravitational radiation, perhaps produced during the universe's earliest moments and what's known as inflation, to which the theory to of which Paul Davies contributed a not insignificant amount, you mm -hmm. must know, uh, this, this uh, incredible theory that posits the universe sprung forth perhaps from nothing, a vacuum, a universe from nothing, as, as Lawrence Krauss has once said. Uh, this phenomenon 
was thought to be all-consuming to cosmologists. Little did we know that something a little bit bigger than a subatomic particle, uh, namely a virus, would take over the whole planet and upend our plans of mortal men and women to, to study the earliest moments in the universe. And I always think, Matt, when I'm thinking about what we do as cosmologists, I gave a talk to some undergraduates last night, and they asked me, you know, what's the most surprising thing about being a professor? And I said, it's that I do almost nothing related to what I teach you guys as undergraduates. <laughs> I never sit down and say, here's the Maxwell's equations. Here's the, <laughs> here are the laws of quantum mechanics of Schrodinger. Or even here's the laws of cosmology and Einstein. It's how do I get, you know, this diesel fuel up to 17,000 feet? Or how do I get this cryostat, this, this particular uh, part in this cryostat to start working again and get the vacuum to very low pressure? And, and all those things were upended by the supply chain, by the personnel, by the, you know, the very human needs. And we had protocols in place. And UC San Diego, thanks to the leadership of our dear chancellor, my boss, I'm not sucking up to him too much, although I am the chancellor's professor. But we had amazing protocols in place for testing that allowed my students and almost uniquely among the various collaborations that I'm affiliated with to basically not lose work and actually be able to go into that building across the way there that you have footage from from last year. So we, we had social distancing. We had testing and, and tracing and cetera in place, but it was incredibly disruptive for the for the project. And we're basically had a one year hiatus. And and but thankfully, uh, things are back to normal here in the northern hemisphere. But you may know that most of my work is either in Antarctica at the South Pole or in Chile at 17,000 feet in the Atacama Desert, they're out of phase by six months. And so when we were having a surge, they were having a lull. Now they're having a little bit more of a surge. We're obviously having a lull. Hopefully it's behind us. We've rolled out vaccines. They're a little bit slower to roll them out. So there's you know kind of a rolling series of, of challenges. And we in the scientific and technical business, we talk about risk management. So how do you manage the probability of an event occurring? You multiply the cost and human impact, potentially, you only can estimate it, and you multiply that by the probability that it could occur. Nobody that I know had global pandemic, you know, in January of 2020. And now everybody has it at the top of all of our risk registers. And so it's brought a new modality to thinking about astronomy. And who would have thought it? And all of this, as you've just said, is so far from the cosmology that you want to do that really you're, so much of your professional life has been wrapped around for so many years. We did say up front, as I introduced you, that you are the director of the Simons Observatory, which is, of course, what we're talking about. I've been wondering ever since that conversation, I mean, you've, you've filled in some of the whole, uh, but what is the status of the observatory? I mean, are we headed toward first light for the amazing instruments that are going to be down there on that high plane in Chile. Yeah, this is an amazing observatory. It's uh, funded in large majority by the Simons Foundation in New York City and, uh, and our amazing collaboration of over 40 institutions, almost 300 people, co-led by uh, spokesperson Suzanne Staggs at Princeton University, Mark Devlin at UPenn, Adrian Lee at UC Berkeley. And we've been stewarding this experiment since late 2015. And now it's, you know, 2021. We uh, are aiming for first light late this year or perhaps early 2022, which time we will start collecting our first microwaves, first photons. People talk about first light. We talk about first microwaves because what we are seeking is the afterglow of the formation of the first elements, which persist until the origin of the first atoms, helium and hydrogen form. And we actually image the, the afterglow of creation 
via this uh, ancient photons that come to our telescopes all the way from the beginning of these these elemental formation epoch to our telescopes today. So 13.7 billion years have elapsed. Along the way, these photons encounter all sorts of particles of dark energy, uh, or dark matter perhaps, dark energy. We don't know if it's a particle or if it's a field. Uh, the universe is evolving, galaxy clusters and so forth. And what we want to know is what can these ancient relic photons teach us about the past? So I always say we're kind of like archaeologists. We as cosmologists are ancient photonic archaeologists, and we're studying the ancient universe courtesy of these artifacts. We have four different telescopes in, Atac in the Atacama Desert that will make up the Simons Observatory. We're pouring concrete, as I said. We have to have diesel fuel trucks to bring up diesel fuel for our generators. We have a power station. We have roads. We have snow plowing equipment. It's an industrial equipment, but we also have to keep the site pristine and clean and safe. It's an unimaginable, you know, kind of logistical challenge, the likes of which astronomers aren't used to. So we have to manage it like professionals. And luckily, those individuals that I named, Suzanne, Adrian, and Mark, and I, along with professional project managers, are running it like a business. And it's fitting because this is a $100 million class experiment. Uh, so these four telescopes will capture ancient images of both the cosmic microwave background's potential signature of these ancient gravitational waves if and only if gravitational waves were produced during the inflationary epoch. And it will also measure the impact of clusters of galaxies, of dark matter, of the evolution of dark energy. We know dark energy exists. We know almost nothing about it. We know dark matter exists. We don't know if it's a particle, if it's a field, if it's evolving gravitational, if gravity itself is evolving. And recently, there's been a wealth of activity in the interest of whether or not we can detect the existence of Planet Nine with the Simons Observatory, which will appeal to listeners of planetary radio. Because I always make a challenge to my friends in the extra extrasolar planetary community and in the uh, in the Kuiper Belt science uh, that that friends of planetary radio uh, are interested in. I always say, hmm, we on the cosmic microwave background front, we with our cosmic telescopes can detect Planet Nine potentially. Can you guys detect? Afterglow of inflation, perhaps, <laughs> with your astronomical telescope. I like to chide those guys, you know. <laughs> I had on Constantine Vitigian recently on the show, on my podcast, and I, I gave, he's a fun guy. He's, he's a very delightful young man. Rock and roll. <laughs> yes, that's right. I got to get him on. We got to have a live jam session someday. I'll play my iPhone <laughs> while he plays the bass. <laughs> you have been chasing these primordial photons for so many years, yeah. and so much of what you've just described and that chase are at the core of this terrific book, uh, which we talked about up front, I'll mention it again, losing the Nobel Prize. Why has this held such fascination for you for so long? Being able to answer this maybe most basic, maybe the first question about our universe that, that can be answered. All right. Yeah, I've always been asked, why am I interested in cosmology? And I think the reason is because it, I think it's the biggest question you can ask. It really reflects upon what, uh, what a human being is capable of conceiving, our origin, whether or not there was a single origin, whether there were multiple origins of multiple universes, whether multiple universes exist simultaneously, 
What's the nature of, of space and time itself? Did time itself have a beginning? And what are the implications for philosophy, for theology? As you know, I wrestle with these questions. I think about them as, you know, perhaps the most important questions besides uh, whether or not the price of Bitcoin will go up. No, I don't think about that very much. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, but whether or not a human being can answer these questions, these used to be only the purview of philosophers and theologians. Now we can access them using telescopes, the tools of the scientific method are now useful in what was once purely philosophical and or, and or theological pursuits. And that means we can have a dialogue. And to me, those kinds of dialogues, I say, you know, one of the catchphrases of my show is like debate, but do it with love. In other words, we can have comedy, we can have comedy, but we can have comedy, we can get along and we can discuss the most grandiose in a good way subjects that the human brain can conceive of. So yes, I conceived of Bicep in 2001, it's the 20th anniversary, along with the late, great Andrew Lang and others at Caltech, where I was a postdoc before I came here, before I had a family, before I became a professor. It's been a long time. And only in the you know preceding 17 years that I've been at UCSD have I grown even more enamored with this type of science. Not only in the pursuit of measuring or detecting inflation or understanding that, because I think Along the way, I've come to realize that there are other prizes and there are other mysteries that the CMB can reveal. It seems to be this like jackpot paying out slot machine in Vegas that, mm. you know, it just keeps paying out, you know, Nobel Prize medallions potentially, though not necessarily being my main motivation anymore, although it once was, as I admit candidly. For me, the, 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 the biggest prize is that we can understand the fundamental nature of how our universe is structured. And, and in so doing, we get a better utility and a better efficient use of perhaps our greatest gift, which is our mind. And, and to understand how the universe is organized, I think that's perhaps our greatest, our greatest capacity as human beings. Well said. Why is this proving to be so very, very difficult? So many recent attempts, some of them yours, bicep one, bicep two, which you were a key player, you, you conceived of, a space telescope called Planck, lots of other instruments. Why, have, why are we still looking for the answers about the CMB and what it can tell us about inflation? Yeah, I was talking with, again, with um, folks that are searching for Planet Nine. And a lot of the problem that they have with searching for Planet Nine is this inverse square law that you are undoubtedly familiar with and listeners in Planet. That's why I'm radio. holding the microphone so close to That's your right. mouth. It's the inverse square law. But it's actually, you get that twice with, or, you know, you get that squared when you're searching for reflected light from a planet, right? So you have the inverse square law squared, which is like the inverse fourth law. The exact same thing happens when you search for gravitational waves from the inflationary epoch, if it occurred. So A, we don't know if inflation occurred. We believe there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that inflation occurred, but it may not have. There are other competing alternatives to the inflationary epoch of cosmogenesis, that the universe emerged from this quantum state um, before which we do not know what the universe was like and how the universe got into that quantum state. We can only speculate. But nevertheless, inflation may not have occurred, A, or B, it may have occurred, but at such a low energy scale that we'll never detect sufficient gravitational wave energy. Uh, second of all, the gravitational waves themselves if you like, are located at such great distances. And because energies in, in the cosmic background and in any type of photon or any type of radiation, they dilute 
as the redshift to the fourth power. So they actually mm-hmm. dilute as this inverse fourth power, just like the light reflected from an extrasolar pl- from a planet in the outer Kuiper belt or whatever. That also goes as the inverse uh, distance to the fourth power. Great distances in cosmology also decrease as the inverse distance, if you like distance being measured by redshift, mm-hmm. to the fourth power. If you like the number of photons, the density of how many photons or gravitons or gravitational waves there are, those decrease as one over the cube of the volume or the of the radius or the the volume, and then their wavelength gets stretched out or redshifted as well by one factor of this redshift factor. So you get redshift to the fourth power. So it's incredibly hard to do that. Now, LIGO took 40 years, and it cost a billion two hundred thousand dollars. I've had on Ray Weiss and uh, Barry Barish on my podcast. They almost gave up. You know, the NSF almost pulled the plug many times on them. Uh, they had on many great um, uh, supporters and champions. They actually had to get lobbyists in Congress, basically, to keep it floating. It took them 40 years to measure something that's only, Matt, only one billion two hundred thousand two hundred million light years away. We're trying to measure something that's four thousand uh, megaparsecs away from us if you will the beginning of time the origin of the cosmic microwave background and so it's that much that ratio to the fourth power more challenging if you will for those reasons it takes a long time to do what we're trying to do and yet we think it's possible but again we have no guarantees in this game because inflation may not have happened at all and that's what makes it exciting because if inflation if we do detect it we rule out a vast landscape of other alternative models that say there was no inflationary epoch That's what excites me. Brian Keating of UC San Diego directs the Simons Observatory, hosts Into the Impossible, and wrote Losing the Nobel Prize. I'll be joined by Bruce Betts in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Bill Nye, the planetary guy here. The threat of a deadly asteroid impact is real. The answer to avoiding it? Science. And you. It's the only large-scale natural disaster that could one day be prevented. The Society is getting ready to award its next round of Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grants to talented astronomers around the world. You can learn more about this opportunity and our other work at planetary.org neo. We're just trying to save the world. Hey, Planetary Radio listeners, the Planetary Society now has an official online store. We've teamed up with Chop Shop, known for their space mission posters, to bring you space-inspired art and merchandise. You can find exclusive Planetary Society t-shirts, posters, and more. Visit planetly slash space shop to learn more. That's planet.ly forward slash space shop. It is time to uh, talk to the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Tell us the status of the STEP grants. Uh, Yes, the new grants program from the Planetary Society, the science and technology empowered by the public. We got a a whole bunch of pre-proposals, good stuff. They are starting into evaluation now and we'll be looking to have some results by August or so and invite full proposals from our favorites that will lead to new grants activities for the Planetary Society. I cannot wait to uh, hear about some of those uh, proposals. That'll be really fun. I guess you can tell us about the night sky. It's also really fun. Venus, looking super bright, but low in the west shortly after sunset, and to its upper left, much dimmer Mars. And on the 11th, 12th, and 13th of June, the crescent moon will be making its way up from Venus to Mars out in that direction. In the pre-dawn, you can check out pretty darn bright Jupiter 
over in the southeast before dawn, and Saturn to its upper right looking yellowish. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1985 that the Vega balloons, Vega 1 and 2 balloons, were deployed in the atmosphere of Venus by the Soviet Union, successfully gathering data in the upper atmosphere of Venus. And it was 2010 that Hayabusa returned the first samples directly from an asteroid. I love hearing about those uh, successful explorations of Venus, especially in light of the fact that those two missions have uh, just been chosen by NASA to to return to that that crazy hot place. And we'll be talking more about that in upcoming episodes of Planetary Radio, including uh, hopefully a conversation with the principal investigators of both of those missions. They're both past guests of the show. Excellent. We move on to... Man, that was quite a wind-up, and once it let loose, that was pretty powerful. But <laughs> at first, there it sounded like the cowardly lion trying to trying to roar. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard getting going at the beginning of the show. So, a random space fact: John Young has lots of records in space exploration, and one of them is he is tied for the record number of launches to space with seven. But he's the only one with seven where one of his seven was from the surface of the moon with Apollo 16. I love that. John Young, who was uh, spoken of so admiringly by Bob Crippen in that uh, show that we uh, did a while back, based on the experience they had, the two of them uh, flying the very first uh, space shuttle mission uh, not long ago. You can find it at planetary.org slash radio. We have a contest. We do. I asked you about the International Space Station and commanders and pointed out that on April 27th of 2021, Akihiko Hoshide became commander of the International Space Station, becoming the second Japanese astronaut to command. Who was the first? That was your question. First Japanese astronaut to command the International Space Station. How did we do, Matt? Big response, big, big, big response. And we have, I believe, a first-time winner. I don't usually say the city that somebody is uh, hails from, but I'm going to in this case because it's my favorite medium-sized Midwestern town. <laughs> the winner is Christopher Mullins. Congratulations, Christopher. He lives in Carbondale, Illinois, which is, of course, where Southern Illinois University uh, at Carbondale is and and where I was, uh, what, four years ago for uh, the big solar eclipse and and hope to be again in uh, three more years when it returns in 2024. He listens to us on the great WSIU, that, that terrific station out of uh, Southern Illinois University. He says the first Japanese commander of the ISS was Koichi Wakata. That is correct. Commanded in 2014. Christopher, you are going to get that really pretty, well, okay, really handsome planetary radio t-shirt. Bruce and I love to wear it. He was wearing it just the other day. I'm, I happen to be wearing a light sail t-shirt at the moment, but I will be back to planetary radio attire very soon. I see you looking down at your shirt. Well, I had, I'm, I'm wearing a Viking sweatshirt and I was trying to remember what t-shirt. I'm wearing an, a, a second generation planetary radio t-shirt. So not the current incarnation. That one's nice, too, but uh, but I especially like the current one. Shall we move on to the next trivia contest, perhaps? Oh, yes. Please, yes. 
who holds the record for most launches to space from Earth at seven? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Tell me everyone who has seven launches to space from Earth. This shouldn't be too difficult to figure out, but it doesn't pop into my head. Hey, if it pops into yours or if you take the time to look it up, uh, go ahead, enter. Get that entry to us by Wednesday, June 16th at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific time. Not January 16th. Apparently last time I said January 9th was the (laughs) deadline. (laughs) Okay. Uh, January, no, June 16th. And uh, you might win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt that you can check out. It's at chopshopstore.com in the Planetary Society store. Maybe leave some nice comments about the model uh, showing it off to you. That's it. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what you would ask a robot that flew to space. Thank you, and good night. Here's my question. So what do you do when the humans are sleeping? (laughs) Or maybe I don't want to know. Uh, (laughs) That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up? By the way, we'll also send the winner of Bruce's new contest a copy of Brian Keating's great book, Losing the Nobel Prize. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its prize-worthy members. No trip to Sweden required. Mark Hilverdez, our associate producer, Josh Doyle, composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro.